0: I love my mom. She comes from an amazing line of women. I knew her grandmother. She lived two doors down from us in rural Kentucky until she passed away when I was about 10. My mom's mom lived across town, and she worked at the makeup counter at Baker and Hickman's downtown. She was often... Uh, when out with my mother, confused for my mother's sister, which I don't know how my mother felt about that. (laughs) Grandmother died when I was in my early 30s, and Connie and I and the kids were living over in Cambridge in England. My mom always loved her children very well. She's one of those mothers who is constantly encouraging. She was the type who would follow their son to the prom and take pictures. (laughs) Back when cameras were not subtly described as phones... No, phones were things that hung on walls or sat on tables. No, cameras were large and obvious. But that didn't stop her. She was not formally educated beyond high school, but she would read to me for hours when I was a child. I got biographies of Abraham Lincoln, of Frank Lloyd Wright. I had the geodesic dome explained to me in the words of Buckminster Fuller. I mean, this was before I went to grade school. I was an eager learner, that's true, but she was an eager teacher. Looking back, she could be extraordinarily indulgent. Like when my eighth grade health teacher extolled the virtues of eating kidney. So I asked mom for kidney for dinner. She well hid whatever knowing reluctance must have been there. She cheerfully bought the kidney, cooked it for a meal for the whole family, and then was kind when the family turned out not to be too excited to eat the kidney. <laughs> Speaking of meals, I asked her once, as uh, high school was getting busier, if we could try having our main family meal together for breakfast in the morning. Because, you know, schedules in the afternoon and evening, we're kind of busy and uh, always game. Sure enough, she persuaded Dad, and we tried it for a while, even until the natural inertia kind of led us back to dinner together in the evening. I was embarrassed, creeped out, and proud. When a substitute teacher in seventh grade called Roll realized whose son I was and proceeded to tell me in front of the whole class, "Your mother was the most beautiful girl in town!" Oh She's always like gardening more than cooking, and is able to graciously change the topic when she senses that anyone is uncomfortable. She endured a difficult marriage to my dad for decades and began to work while I was in high school. It began to dawn on me at age 14 or 15 that college came after high school, and that college wasn't free. Mom mentioned to me that dad's employer would probably provide a full scholarship to me if I went to a state school, and for some reason, I remember right where I was on Main Street in the car with mom when she said that to me, and I responded, but mom, what if I want to go someplace else like over to Cambridge in England? Not missing a beat, Mom said reassuringly, I'm sure we'll find a way to make it work. What must have gone on in her head? Grace and encouragement marked whatever came out of her mouth. I could go on all day talking about my mom. She constantly provided unsolicited wisdom for me. I remember we had driven to the big city of Louisville one time, which was almost four hours hours away back then before they would completed all the highways. And if I'm remembering correctly, I had won a a $600 scholarship for the results of some test, and then a second scholarship for $100 voted on by my peers. Well, when this uh, little uh, luncheon was over, Mom and I were in the elevator heading down, and she just looked at me out of nowhere and said, I'm proud of you for that scholarship. But honey, don't be fooled by how much money they are. That $100 scholarship is so much more important than that $600 one. There are lots of smart people in the world. There aren't many people who can lead people and help them work together. We weren't talking about anything like that. And yet that is absolutely typical of probably daily things my mom would just say to me. I've never forgotten that and countless other stories I could tell. I love my mom. A few more relevant facts. Number one, she lives in Brentwood, Tennessee. Number two, she regularly listens to all of these sermons. Laughter And number three, Jesus teaches me that I am supposed to love Him more than I love my mother. Friends, how could that be? How am I supposed to love Jesus, whom I've never even met, more than I love my mom? Where do I get such an outlandish idea? Well, I get it from the Bible. If you're visiting today, or if you're not used to Christianity, one of the most basic facts I can tell you is that we believe there's a God, that there's only one God, that He made the world, that He made everyone in the world, that He's going to judge us, and that He has communicated to us, He has spoken to us through His Word, and that the Bible is God's Word that we can read the Bible and see what God thinks on things. The Bible is made up of the Old Testaments and the New Testaments, so we've been studying Deuteronomy in the Old Testament as the nation of Israel was prepared to go over into the promised land of Canaan. Now we're turning to the New, particularly to the Gospels, in which we find recorded the life, ministry, and teachings of Jesus. And in our series, the rest of the year, we're planning to be in Matthew's Gospel. Now if you want to do background work on this for the rest of the year... If you go to our church website, you can find an earlier series of studies in Matthew that took us up uh, into chapter 10 in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel has five great blocks of teaching. And can I just say something that's a minor heresy these days? I love red-letter editions of the Bible, of the New Testament. Um, They fell out of favor about 10 or 20 or 30 years ago because people kept saying, Jesus' words aren't more inspired than other people's words. I entirely agree with that. You know, I think everything in the Bible is true. It's just, I'm not I don't have that good a memory, and it's really helpful to me if it has the red letters to find when I'm looking for something Jesus said. I I know the other stuff is good, too, and it's all true, but it's just helpful for me, just for memory, to find... Anyway, just letting you know. Any publishers out there ever want to start publishing red-letter editions again? I love them. Thank you so much for them. But if you were to look through Matthew's Gospel with these red-letter editions, you'll notice there are five big collections of Jesus' teaching. The famous one is the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7 we are at the very end of the second big collection of his teaching. It's chapter 10. This is the teaching Jesus gave to the 12 when they're about to go out uh, as his emissaries throughout Israel. And we are at the very end of Matthew chapter 10. And if you look at the Bibles provided, you'll find it on page 815. You'll be helped by keeping that open through our study, reading along with me. Matthew chapter 10, beginning verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. Friends, verse 34 is the headline and the heart of the passage. And what we see here very clearly is that Jesus disappointed many. Jamie was speaking to us last week from Philippians 4, and you know that, that, that verse in Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is one of the most popular, ripped out of context verses in the whole Bible. People take that to give a shot of God power to whoever, whatever it is they're doing. You know, maybe it's in athletics, maybe it's in finance, maybe it's in some other hobby they have. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus did not come just to baptize our carnal goals for success and make them work. And when he says here in verse 34, I didn't come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword, this is what he's talking about. He's saying he did not come simply to take the existing order, baptize it, and make it work really well. So in their place, in their time, what that means is he did not come simply to reestablish the throne of David, get the Roman overlords out, and make things the best they'd ever been. That's not why he came then. He came to reassert the centrality of God through himself and his work. And as he did that, even among the people of God in Israel, let alone through the nations of the world, that would cause a ripping amount of conflict as people whose lives have been given over to other idols, began to be turned away from the things they had given their lives to and toward God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the conflict that he had come to bring. Not that he came for conflict itself. He came to renew allegiance to God, as it were, through him. But when he says, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth, I have come not to bring peace, but a sword What he meant by that specifically is what's laid out in our passage. You look in verse 35, the second verse, it begins with that word for. That means he's going to explain this surprising cryptic statement of his. And what we find is Jesus gave his followers two instructions, basically, in our verses for today. Number one, love Jesus more than you love anyone else. That's verses 35 to 39. Love Jesus more than you love anyone else. Verses 35 to 39. And number two, love Jesus' people. That's down in verses 40 to 42. Love Jesus' people. Again, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The last night of his disciples, with his disciples in John 14, he said to them, my peace I give you. But he added, not as the world gives. You don't really become a Christian to get out of trouble. At least not trouble right now. Jesus did not come to give us strength to do whatever we wanted. He didn't come to help us simply succeed, but he came to change what we want to succeed at. So Jesus did come to bring peace ultimately, but not immediately. Because of this world's rebellion against God, on the way to final and ultimate peace, there would be conflict. That's what Jesus summarizes here in verse 34 with that word sword. And that conflict would most fundamentally be a conflict of the heart. A conflict of different loves. The various loves of this world and this life that have our allegiance naturally and the supreme love of God, of Christ, that was now coming to challenge afresh these other loves in the hearts of every person on earth who would hear about Jesus Christ through his followers. So let's look at these two basic instructions. Love Jesus, love his people. And as we do, I pray that your love for family and your love for others won't shrink but that your love for God will grow. First, in verses 35 to 39, Jesus calls people to reorient themselves. In these verses, we're told that we should love Jesus more than we love any others. And if you're a note-taker, that's point one of two points. It is not a complex outline. Love Jesus more than we love any others. That's 35 to 39. And I think 35 to 39 is in two parts. 35 to 37, more than any other person 38, 39, more than you love yourself. So 35 to 37, that includes any member of your family. Look again. Verse 35, For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter, against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And people may wonder, well, why those three? That's sort of a random selection. I mean, well, first of all, you're clearly missing the son-in-law and the father-in-law. So what's, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is Jesus is talking about uh, just a a man and a woman who are mature, and he's talking about their same gender authorities. So for a man, it's his father. For a woman, it's her mother. But then when they get married, the son wasn't understood to have joined the woman's family. The woman was understood to have joined the man's family. So there wouldn't be any point in talking about the son and the father-in-law. He's not in that kind of relationship. There was a point in talking about the daughter and the mother-in-law because now she was in that relationship once she got married. So that's why he brings out, I think, these three examples. Verse 36, And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So friends, just imagine the love that so many of us have for each of these family members. The deep affection and enjoyment and appreciation, kind of like I was trying to communicate to you about my mom. At the beginning of this message. Now imagine loving Jesus that much. Now, for some who've had a difficult relationship with their families, that's not a hard command. That's maybe one of the easier commands. For a lot of people, that's a really hard command. It's such a hard command, it almost seems like fiction or nonsense. What on earth could this mean? It was Augustine in his confessions who said to God, He loves you too little. Who loves anything together with you, which he loves not for your sake? Friend, we're to love everything in our lives for the sake of God. Everything that he's given us, it's all from him. When we begin to love the things He's given us more than we love Him, things get to be out of order. Things don't work then. That's not how they were built to be. Jesus said here that such love makes us worthy of Him. Did you notice that language repeated in verse 37 and 38? Worthy of Him. Well, in what sense? Well, in the sense of our relationship with Him being appropriate, loving Him like that. Our worthiness means that He has produced affections and behaviors uh, that are appropriate for us to have for Him, for someone who is that person, that God. They correspond properly, as John Piper put it, to His value. In the last chapter of the Old Testament prophet Micah, Micah described the situation among God's people lost in sin in very similar words to the ones Jesus uses here. I think Jesus just takes this literally from Micah and He kind of quotes it with an ironic kind of repurposing. Because when Micah says this, and he says it almost exactly the same, it's Micah chapter 7 verse 6, for the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. It's almost exactly the same. But when Micah is saying it, it's part of his reproducing God's judgment on the people because of their idolatry. When Jesus says it, It's talking about what will feel like a kind of judgment because the people of Israel are now being torn from their idolatry to follow the true God. It's sort of the the same reality to be experienced, but now going the the other direction. Jesus taught here a shocking reorientation of people's affections, their love to himself. The Lord had taught this back in Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Friend if you are here and you're not a Christian, one of the the ways you can easily get confused about Christianity is we are the most doctrinal religion on the planet. Uh, Having talked to people seriously of a number of other religions and read widely, I don't know of any religion that cares about doctrine like we do. And among people who call themselves Christians, evangelical Protestants are the most doctrinally. We care most, that's what we talk about all the time, that's what makes us what we are. And because of that, if you're looking in on Christianity, particularly Protestantism, you're trying to understand, you can sometimes miss the centrality of love. We understand the basic command in the Bible is that we are commanded to love God. Not merely to obey God, but to love God because of the way He has acted toward us. All of our doctrine, which is essential, organizes our understanding, as it were, of his love of us and of what he calls us to in responding in love to him. But that's at the very center and core of it. So when Jesus here puts love in such a a central position in following him, it's really not that surprising if you know the religion of the Bible. If you've read and understood the Old Testament, the central command in the Old Testament, sometimes people think the Old Testament is about laws and the New Testament is about love. No, the New Testament is about love because the Old Testament is about love. The great command in the Old Testament it's founded on is at Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Well, so now Jesus was updating that as it were. He was saying that love for God would appropriately be love for him. You see that repeated in verse 37, you know, more than me, more than me. That's why the conflicts come, because there are these competing loves. Now look, Jesus clearly taught elsewhere that parents are to be honored. He does not undermine honoring parents at all. And he certainly honored his parents himself. And he certainly commanded his followers to love others, even our enemies. But here Jesus is also clearly calling his disciples to love him. And to be allied to him in a way that would supersede our loyalty even to our family. It is a call to uncompromising loyalty toward Jesus. No other love is ever to exceed or even equal the love that we have for Christ. No other loyalty is to challenge our loyalty to him. Christ will have no constitutional monarchy in our lives. He is the absolute and supreme sovereign. That is the only way he relates to us other than in judgment. And that will ruffle the feathers of others in our lives who would vie for that chief position in our hearts. Loving Jesus most will sometimes even often bring conflict. And friend, that's been the story of Christianity as it's grown around the world. When Christianity is introduced into a culture, what happens? Fights break out in families. There are people in this congregation... Who can tell you that they were brought up in a Christian family and when they were baptized, it was the answer to prayers of parents and grandparents? Praise God for that. There are other members of this congregation who can tell you that when they were baptized here, their parents disowned them, their family treated them as dead. And friends, that's not just been one, two, or three, that's been a whole host of people from various backgrounds. Because making Jesus supreme is offensive to people who don't understand who he is. This demand for supremacy in our affections threatens all kinds of idols. If you would make an idol of your family, it threatens that idol. Any kind of ethnocentrism or tribalism, it threatens that idol. Any kind of racism or nationalism... Any kind of hyper-focus on gender, of masculinism or feminism, it challenges that idol. It says none of those are as fundamental to the Christian's identity as is our love of Jesus and his love for us and his shared spirit among us. What about your own family? Well, praise God, as I say, we have the family of many who have been, we have the children of many who have been encouraged by their family to come. But brothers and sisters, I know some of you are probably weary in the conflict that's caused in your own family. I want you to know that insofar as you let us know about that, we pray with you. We mourn with you about that. We pray for God still to use you to recover other members of your family through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we pray for each other. Brothers and sisters, Christ's words here make it undeniably clear that to worship Jesus correctly is to place him above even the nearest members of our family. Our spiritual family does not determine our spiritual, I mean our physical family, does not determine our spiritual allegiance. They can't finally make that so. Our family was never intended to be ultimate. It was always subservient to God. We are to love Jesus more than all. And as I said earlier, we actually love them best when we love Christ most. Our parents, our kids, weren't meant to have first place in our heart's affections. They can't sustain the demands of it or fulfill the duties such a role would place on them. But loving Christ supremely is right. When we get that right, then we can love others more freely as we're meant to. I wonder what other implications of this Are running through your mind this morning. My Christian brothers and sisters, how can you and I magnify Christ when our love for Him takes from us relationships with those that are closest to us, costs us those friendships or those family members? But what can we do? When we admire Jesus more than anyone else? When we enjoy Jesus more than we enjoy anyone else? when we want His approval more than we want anybody else's approval, when we want to be with Him more than we want to be with anyone else, when we're more grateful to Him than we are to anyone else, when we trust Him more than we trust anyone else, when we are more glad to see Him lifted up and exalted than we are anyone else, when our prayers are centered around Christ and His glory, when our affections go out more to Him than to anyone else, what, what can we do? Friends, this is what it means to love Christ most. And what if you don't? If you hold to loving anything or anyone above Jesus? Well, if I'm reading Jesus correctly here, he says apart from loving Jesus most, there is no following of him. None. We are to love Jesus more than we love any others, and that includes any member of our family. As we keep listening here, though, there is that second half of this first point, 38 and 39, verses 38 and 39, we find that love of Jesus must take priority even over love of self. Look at verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So just to be very clear, what Jesus is teaching here in verse 38 is that to follow Jesus correctly is to be more devoted to him than to your own physical existence. Jesus' words here are comprehensive, and they are terrifying. And you got to realize when Jesus said this, this is the first time we have him in any of the Gospels mentioning staros, cross. Uh, That gets mentioned in all the Gospels about a year or two after this when Peter confesses him as the Messiah for the first time. That's when he, in all the Gospels, tells them, Yes, and I'm going to be killed on a cross. Before that point, the cross isn't mentioned, except here. This will be the first time he's used it as an image. And it's not the cross, it's just a cross. And this cross that he mentions is not like that one right there in our stained glass. Or it's not like the ones that we've sung about in the hymns. It's not an object of sentimental positive devotion it is as ugly as a lynching rope. It is so offensive, the word would not even be used in polite society. So for Jesus to say the word is a little bit like a preacher swearing. And for him to put that right in the middle to help people understand that's what it's going to mean to follow him was offensive and confusing. What could that mean? Jesus was beginning to teach them the amount of self-denial there would be in truly following Jesus. The place we must go to meet Jesus is the cross. We leave all to follow him. That's what he calls us to. Apart from our being willing to take up the cross, we only have what James calls a faith without works. And that's no true faith. Friends, the good news is that you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be of your sins, even of your sin of lack of love against God, if you'll repent of your sins and turn to him. Trust Jesus. God sent his only son to live a perfect life and to die on the cross taking punishment and penalty that was due to all of us who sinned but who would believe in him. He took that on himself. And he raised him from the dead to show that he accepted that he was behind this ministry, and that his sacrifice was effectual. He ascended to heaven, presented the sacrifice to his heavenly Father, where that sacrifice was accepted on behalf of all of us who would turn and trust in him. Friends, that's good news. That is good news. That's what Jesus' ministry is about, and that's why the gospel is so tied up with this self-denial. The Christian gospel is a funny thing. It's entirely free and gracious and yet it requires everything you have. Both are true, and they're not really contradictory. You can just listen to one strain or the other, and you can come up with an artificial Christianity pretty easily. The grace one is really popular, where you only talk about, yeah, we can't do it, Jesus did it, that's all there is to it. Well, that's not really right, because Jesus here is talking about what his followers' lives are characterized by, and they're characterized by... Utter and complete self-sacrifice. Now the truth is our self-sacrifice will never be good enough or complete enough that it earns us really anything apart from God graciously giving us rewards to encourage us. Uh, our salvation is earned by Jesus Christ. We get it by, by, by kindness, by grace as we trust in Christ. The other religion is just to build one of complete works. That's right, we've got to work, we've got to do this. We've got to read verses like this all the time and make sure that we are hard and denying ourselves as if we could save ourselves. Friends, you cannot give enough money to this church to save your soul. You can't attend here so regularly to save your soul or sing loud enough to save your soul. It just doesn't work like that. You realize nothing virtuous you do ever makes God forget about some sin you committed. Let's say you sinned against somebody nobody even knows about it. You and that other person, the only people on the whole planet who know about it. The other person dies. Ha, you're scot-free! Well, the most important witness to that action lives he lives forever and he is more just than you are he is more concerned about the truth than you are he's more concerned about the image of god and that other person that you acted against than you are friend this is the god we're dealing with a god who is majestically holy and stunningly gracious in christ i wonder what you are being called to give up in order to follow jesus today A demand to God that He provide you with a spouse? A different job? Answers for some nagging questions apart from which you just don't feel you can follow the Lord? More people agreeing with you on this or that or more appreciative friends? As you get to know folks here at church, I think you will see that shocking self-sacrifice is a part of the basic plan of following Jesus. It's not some advanced optional extra for the super mature. You either have that or no real following Jesus. That's pretty much the options in front of us. We are not presenting Christianity as some trouble-free life. That's the problem, by the way, with the TV preachers and the prosperity gospel. A lot of them will say all the things in the gospel that I've just said to you. They'll talk about the substitutionary atonement, the blood, and all that. They'll say all those things. In that sense, they're orthodox. But what they sell you is all your troubles in this life can be gone now. That is a lie. And they tell you that in no small part, so you will give them your money. That was for free. (laughs) Then you look at verse 39. Jesus repeats the fact that to truly follow him will be to be willing to lose your life. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Throughout the chapter, that crucial bit, is, 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 you see there in verse 30, is for my sake. If you look up at verse 22 in the passage before this one, just like he had mentioned there, being hated by all for my name's sake. Everything we do, everything we endure, we do so ultimately for Jesus' sake, for his name's sake, for his reputation's sake. So friend, this road Jesus is laying out for us of following him is a hard road, but it's a joyful road. Because we've found that which we were made for, which gives us more joy than all the passing, disappointing joys of this world anyway. We've realized that parents are good. Children are good. Jesus is even better. Doesn't make us love children or parents less. Actually helps us love them more. Because we love them as they're meant to be loved. Now I know if you look around at your daily life, you look back at the last three or four days, may not look like you've been taking up many crosses. Or maybe they were things that didn't, had nothing to do with your religion. You just have a bad boss, and he was making things hard for you. You know, I understand. But if you keep looking at your life, if you're a Christian, you will see a pattern, small decisions that we make regularly that show what hope we're living for. That would not be a bad discussion for you to have over lunch today. Can you identify some of those small decisions in the last week that you've made that you don't think you would have made in the same way if you weren't hoping in Jesus like you're hoping in Jesus. I think of Joni Erickson Tata, 50 years ago she had a terrible diving accident. She was paralyzed from the neck down and she had a decision very early on if she would just live in a kind of bitter resentment, which was an overpowering temptation to her, or if she would live in what she's later called this kind of glorious spectacle Uh, a person in great pain and want and need, but to see whatever she had consumed for the glory of God with whatever he gave her. Praise God she made that latter choice. She makes that latter choice every day. You've never read a biography of her. Her works are incredibly encouraging. Joni, Erickson, Tata. Friends, that's the kind of disciple we're called to be. Someone who makes those small decisions every day because of the consuming worth of Jesus Christ. How are you being called to love Jesus more than your own life? To love Jesus more than any other? Well, Friends, that's what the first half of our passage is about in verses 35 to 39. The second half, verses 40 to 42, show that in order to be Jesus' disciples, we wouldn't only have to be reoriented in our loves toward Jesus, but also toward his people. We're called to love Jesus and, number two, to love Jesus' people. And he explains why, I'll have, there are three verses, 40, 41, 42, I'll have three little points for each of those verses. Why, who, and how. Why, verse 40. Who, verse 41. And how, verse 42. We're called to love Jesus' people. Why is this so? Well, look at verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus simply explains that if we really love God, we will love the one he has sent, Jesus. And we will love those whom Jesus sends, those who are our fellow Christians. Those who are called elsewhere in the New Testament, children of God. Paul calls us ambassadors of Christ. We are sent out as representatives of Christ. As Jesus would later say to his disciples after his resurrection, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So you see how our love for God shows itself in our love for other Christians. If you want to know more about this this afternoon, meditate on 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. The very end of that chapter, John writes, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, people sometimes tell me, I don't really like to talk about religion. Religion is a private matter. To which I go, well, your religion may be, but Christianity is not. (laughs) Christianity is a personal matter, that's true. But by its very nature, it is not a private matter. Christianity necessarily involves you in loving other people. And in loving other people particular ways. That's what we see here. We love its outgoing love that typifies the follower of Jesus receiving people sent out in the name of Jesus because of Jesus isn't exactly the same as receiving Jesus it won't save you shouldn't misunderstand these verse verses but if we're receiving them because they're coming in the name of Jesus it does show that we're saved that we have truly received them because we've truly received the one who sent them that's what that kind of love is intended to demonstrate now who are these sent out ones Well, Jesus' people are all of us who represent Jesus. Uh, That's what the Great Commission is about. He sent out all of us to tell the world about Jesus. We want to tell them about Jesus because we want them to find God. And we've come to know and believe that we don't find God through nature or through some temple or some deeds we do. We find God only through Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we could never come to know God. What do we read in John's Gospel, John 1 verse 18? No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That is how John describes the Son of God who came to us incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. Jesus came specifically to make his Father known to his disciples and through them to us and through us to those who are yet to hear this great news of the fact that there is a holy and loving God who's made us. That something is wrong, you're right in suspecting that. What's wrong is you. It's your sin against God and against others. And that because God is good, he will judge you eternally, forever. And yet at the same time, because God is loving, he sent his only son to live a life of perfect trust in his heavenly father and to take the cross on himself when he didn't need to die. And to do that specifically taking the place of all of us who would trust in him. And God raised him from the dead. He ascended to heaven and gave his sacrifice to his heavenly Father. And that sacrifice is there for you if you repent of your sins and trust in him. This is the good news we're told to give. It's good news for you today. As Jesus said in John thirteen twenty, repeating this instruction to them a few years later on his last night with them, he said, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So very practically, let's think about the work you do. How is your job helping you or hindering you in doing this? Is your job providing you with money that helps you to do this? Does it leave you any time in which you can do this? Does your job give you occasions where you can do this? I pray that God will give you wisdom about the right balance in serving Him so that you can do this. Perhaps you've noticed all the construction going on behind us just here on 6th Street. Well, that's one part of our corporate attempt to accept those whom the Lord sends to us, those who are coming as people who want to train to be elders, pastors, ministers, whom we can instruct and encourage on their way. What a privilege that is. What a wonderful way to be involved in welcoming Jesus by welcoming his messengers. We receive our brothers and sisters because they come from Jesus, from God. Well, that's why, because they represent Jesus, they come from, God, Let's consider the question of who Jesus would have us receive. And I think in verse 41, we see that we will love teachers and the doers. Uh, I'm assuming the fact there are two different people mentioned, or kinds of people, uh, Jesus has a purpose in that. Look at verse 41. The one who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. So we are to receive those who bring us God's word and show us God's character. In the first half of the verse, Jesus uses as an example a prophet, someone breaking God's word. In the second half of the verse, he uses the example of a righteous person, someone who is living in accord with God's word and his character. Now, I'm not sure of all the particulars Jesus would have intended with both of these words. But for the purposes of a sermon, they seem to resolve very nicely into those who bring God's word and those who faithfully live out God's word. So that's what I'm going to point you to. And those respective rewards are mentioned in verse 9, finishing their lives, the sense of being saved. Both these mentioned here in verse 41, all of God's other children would be worthy recipients of our hospitality. Because in our hospitality, whoever, whatever Christian is coming, we have an eye not to how important this or that servant seems to be, but to how important the God they serve is. That's the basis for our hospitality. Not a worldly calculation of, oh, this person's important. I'm going to show them some hospitality. No, it's how important is the God they represent. That's the basis for the love that we show that he's talking about here. So it's a joy to watch college students here have family, a family over to their dorm or to have, hear Betsy Bartron inviting people over to her apartment or so many times when I hear someone sick and then these other people came to visit them and I could just go on and on hearing about people caring for the headmen's right now as Jamie's just come home from the hospital. Friends, this this is the kind of love that is supposed to typify Christians, and that has so often been a witness. I remember at Jeanette Devlin's funeral a number of years back, Jeanette was an older member of our congregation, never got married, uh, sitting at the the meal afterwards downstairs, and the nurse who had cared for her, one of the nurses, was Muslim. And I was sitting next to her and talking to her about her mosque, and she went regularly to her mosque, and I just said, do you have, uh, do you have uh, events, you know, like this? And she said, no. She said, I've never seen anything like the way this community has cared for Jeanette. I said, well, you must have something similar. I'm just assuming, you know, Christianity is like this and Islam is like us, only they have different names for everything. And she said, no, I've, I've not seen anything like this. And it made a huge impact on her. Friends, again and again, I've heard things that I think we as Christians sometimes take for granted and the kind of loving care that we're taught by words like these of Jesus to give to each other become powerful witnesses to people around us who just don't know there are people who live lives like that. One of the many joys of being together in a church family is having the privilege of supporting various workers that come come and go, making meals, having them stay, praying for them, I think, well, today, Rob, Rob Smythe and Harshit Singh are sitting right there. You know, both who've been members of our congregation before, and now the Lord has them working elsewhere. It's a joy to partner with them and the work that they're called to do. We receive them in the manner that Jesus was talking about here. It's exactly what's going on. And how many others here in the room have been or will be part of that kind of support from this dear congregation? Uh, some of you right now who have never considered full-time Christian ministry will almost certainly end up doing just that. And you may have a period of time when it's this very congregation that's supporting you for a while. And so many sister congregations are doing that around the world for those who have been a part of our congregation in the past. What a wonderful fellowship to know. The kind of fellowship that, that Paul and the Philippians had in gospel work together. That's what we have with Mes McConnell, with Lauren Barton. Barton with Max Stiles, with Mark Collins, with Hope Henry, with Mark Stamm, with Mandy Wilson, with Katie Gale. I could just go on and on with so many others by God's grace. And while I'm thinking about all those others that we've had the joy of supporting, I think it would be wrong of me not to thank you for your gracious and generous provision for me and my family for the last quarter of a century. I would be like exhibit one from these verses of how you all have been obeying this. You've kindly looked after us and shown us again and again that you're just wanting to encourage us in the good work we've undertaken here. Uh, you have in every sense, I think Jesus meant here, received us. I pray that God will continue to make this congregation a model of receiving those whom God sends to us, whether that's full-time pastor elders or other staff who serve our life together or, or counselors or interns or campus student workers or so many others that we have the privilege to work with, to welcome and to support. And then do note in the last verse, verse 42, what Jesus says here about how we will receive those who come to us in his name. How? In verse 42. We will do whatever we can, even for the least of them. That's what he's teaching in verse 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones, and by that I think he just means a disciple, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple. That's why I think he means a disciple. Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So in verse 42, we see that we are to receive each disciple of Jesus in any way that we can. Whoever gives one of these little ones, that means the least of Jesus' disciples even, we're to treat all of Jesus' disciples, each other, as we would treat Jesus himself. I wonder, does that make you review any of your interactions this last week? If you're supposed to treat every one of Jesus' disciples as you would treat Jesus himself, would there be a couple you'd like to go back and revise now? Some things you didn't say, or some things you did say, or how you said them, or what you did or didn't do? He says here in verse 42, even a cup of cold water, even the the smallest of gifts. Sometimes people read this as a general call to charity. And while I don't mean to diminish the importance of charity in our public or private lives, that's not what this is. The smallness of the gift mentioned here, the fact that it's just a cup of cold water, is showing how significant all of the acts are that are being done out of a heart of love toward God and out of forwarding the welfare of His people. To love him will involve you in loving his people. And that love is comprehensive in nature and may involve you paying for somebody's education, paying for their housing, or simply buying them a meal, or letting them use your internet for 10 minutes. Friends, there's just a vast scope of things that this could be expressed in. The significance of the gift is not merely in the how much, but in the why, and the who, and the for what end. Things like that may seem very small, or some things that seem very small can bring a great blessing to our congregation. We always, I should say, need more people to serve in hospitality. Uh, We have a very specific hospitality ministry because we have so many new members and so many visitors. Carrie Barbic, dear sister who serves us in this, could certainly use help in that. Just contact Carrie if you'd like to know more about that. We find that the people who are new in the church tend to be the ones involved in the church. Then once you make friends, you kind of quietly drop out of hospitality ministry. So if I could just suggest, if you've been here five or ten years, you might be one of the perfect people to actually get back involved in the hospitality ministry and help carry, welcome others to our meetings. But it's in other small things. Ian Will, last week, talking to us about helping to find ways we can help our older members. Uh, or any time you hear announcements about children's workers any one of these services, which may seem very small to you, can help others hugely. And if we do this kind of hospitality because, verse 42, because he is a disciple. You see, it's specifically, it's part of our worship of Jesus. Because he is a disciple. What Jesus is saying here is that this disciple is being accepted for Jesus' sake. The messenger is accepted because the message is being accepted. The hospitality of the hand is reflecting the reception of the heart The heart has received the Lord, and so the Lord's servants are being blessed by the hand. That's why then Jesus can conclude this sentence so strongly here in verse 42. Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. He will be certainly and eternally rewarded. It's all important, and God will forget none of it. Its significance will never be lost, however insignificant it may have seemed in the world at the time. How many things have we done that we seem to think little of, but that we did because the Lord had provided us an opportunity and we had the ability to do it? How many things that seemed like they didn't matter were completely forgettable, but not actions like these, says Jesus? You may forget them, he says, but I will remember them. Eternal reward means an utterly and completely unlosable reward. An utterly and completely unlosable reward. Can you imagine a reward like that? Can you imagine a a life like that? A a, a world like that? Do you even have a, a category for that kind of certainty? Calvin had been serving as preacher in Geneva for a number of years, and People were getting upset over some of his sermons and his calls for membership and discipline, basically. And so they fired him. And they told him, more than that, get out. When he was informed of this, one friend observed to him, if he didn't seem he would be treating, getting a very poor reward for all his work. Calvin simply replied, If I had merely served man, this would have been a poor reward. But it's my happiness that I have served him who never fails to reward his servants to the full extent of his promise. He knew who who he was serving. He knew what he was doing in his preaching. Well, my non-Christian friend, if you can't imagine what it might be like if there really could be a life of such hope, one really filled with unlosable rewards, please look into Jesus more. Please read about him. Look through Matthew's Gospel. Come back to these studies we're doing in him for the rest of this year. This is the life that Jesus is pointing his disciples toward in our passage here as he instructs others in how to love those who go out in his name as his disciples. So this passage teaches love Jesus above all others and love Jesus' people. This is the teaching of this passage. Two conclusions for you today. Look, I've been honest and upfront and told you I have two. Number one, first, the right current conflict is the way to eternal peace and love. The right current conflict is the way to eternal peace and love. Sometimes we just want peace with no conflict. But Jesus here instructs his disciples, and he instructs us too, that current conflict is the way to eternal peace and love. Sometimes we just have too small a view of what's going on. We tend to think that all of life is really just what's happening today. Or yesterday and today. And we are hyper focused in on that. And what passages like this force us to do is it kind of pulls the camera back. It drops the curtain so we can see, you know, the way you're loving your wife and your wife is loving you, or the way you're loving your friend, or the way you're enduring at work, the way you're being faithful in that class. Those things are important, but see, they're actually a part of this much bigger story. And this much bigger story doesn't make these things unimportant it makes these things even more important. They're invested with a particular role in this grand drama of the grace of God in the universe. And we have a crucial role to play in that. So if I try to love my mom more than anything else in the world, as I said, I'll put pressure on her. I'll know disappointment. I'll end up hurting the very relationship I mean to cherish. But if I love Jesus most, if I see what's going on overall, and love in an orderly fashion, then I can love, and then I can be involved in the conflicts that I should be involved in. Especially, I think, when we first come to Christ, the right current conflict is the way to eternal peace and love. Don't just choose the easiest path, the path of immediate non-resistance and ease. The second conclusion, the reward for our love will be the love we share with God and his people forever. The reward for our love will be the love that we share with God and his people forever. People ask me, what's a prophet's reward? What's a righteous man's reward? I don't know. I mean, it doesn't say. Look at any place else in the Bible it's not talked about. So if you just look in context, I think the reward that they're talking about is that life that we get in verse 39. It's the life that does not end. That's how we have rewards that are not able to be lost. That's the reward. Or any reward that we're talking about is a subset of that reward. It is that relationship with God. The reward mentioned here in verse 42 isn't specified. We're told that it would never be lost. The rewards in verse 41 aren't described further. No other scripture tells us of a particular reward called a prophet's reward, or a righteous person's reward. But the nature of the receiving of Jesus and of the God who sent him in verse 40 is a way of speaking of the great end of Christ's coming, which is our being reconciled to God and with him. Our being forgiven through Christ's atoning work and regenerated by the work of the Spirit and brought back into the very presence of God, ultimately without sin and forever. This is the finding our life, having lost it for His sake. We read of up in verse 39, finding our life. The love we know for God comes from God's own love for us. We read in 1 John 4, 19, we love because He first loved us. The reward we are given through all of our trusting in Christ and receiving Him and all His people, His children, His messengers, is a loving relationship with Him Himself. Oh, If you want to meditate on this some more, read John 17 this afternoon and just stew in that prayer. John 17, verse 23, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. The reward for our love will be the love that we share with God and His people forever. He came to us, and He will come again. He said on His last night with His disciples, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's our treasure. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for all the goodnesses you've put in our lives. We pray that you would make the Lord Jesus more dear to each one of us. We ask in his name. Amen.